Great stories this morning in the scripture and uh, all ones that I would love to spend days preaching on. <laughs> you ready? It'll be an all-nighter. No. Let's just pray. Father, would you fall on my words that they might be yours? Would you come by your spirit and uh, touch our hearts? Because, Lord, if we just hear words and they do not speak to our spirit, they're just words. But your word, Lord, let it go forth in such a way that it inspires us to share this good news with so many others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start off, instead of an Old Testament lesson, which is our prerogative in the Anglican Church every once in a while to, to substitute, because there's just so much riches uh, for this day where we, we remember uh, the transformation that goes on in Paul. And so we start off with this, this picture from the book of Acts. And um, if, if anything, it is about a complete reversal, a complete change in who Paul was, the direction he was going and the direction he now is going. Um, it, it is so radical that um, it, it's the same kind of thing that happens when we come to faith. When we come to faith, something shifts. It, it's transformed. It, for some, it happens over time, and for others, it happens immediately. I, I remember going through uh, that change that God was doing in me and having people who were radically changed telling me to do things that I wasn't ready yet to do. I needed God to be the one to convict and to transform and to change. Uh, or I was following a religious spirit because I was going to do what they wanted me to do, what they thought was the right thing to do. I, I had two friends who saw my conversion happening. And, I, you know, I'd grown up in the church, and I had, um, I had thought that I was doing a, a good life and being a good Episcopalian and uh, realized I, was, uh, I had a lot of work to do. And I was confronted by the Lord several times, several retreats, living with my feet in both worlds. And then this one day, this just absolute transformation happened. And in the midst of it, these twins, these boys that were in, involved in my life, told me I needed to go out and burn my album collection. And I was like, no, 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 no. Come on. Like, some of this stuff is really good. It may not be words that edify the Lord, but the music is incredible. I, I had a lot of excuses. The reality is, here was somebody, Paul was set on protecting what he knew. What was he protecting? He was protecting his religion. He was protecting it so zealously that he was willing to say, give me the authority and I will go find all those people of the way and I will bring them back in shackles to you so they can be dealt with. It's like a father when a child goes outside of the norm, right? I remember my kids when I caught them. My conclusion was my conclusion. I didn't want to hear, uh, thank you very much, that's what I was looking for. You read my mind. Uh, my conclusion was my conclusion. I didn't have time to hear why they were disobedient or why what they seemed to be doing was disobedient. I was just aware that they were outside of the bounds of my leveled, expectations of how they should be behave, right? 
And so we bump into that in all sorts of ways in our lives. We bump into rules from bosses and teachers and uh, co-workers and friends and family. They have expectations that we live under. And I know that as we look into recovery ministries, we hear these catchphrases that come out one day at a time. And one of them that I love is expectations are preconceived resentments. Expectations are preconceived resentments. The enemy prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour, the scripture says, because that's what he wants to do. He wants to divide us. Divide us over our opinions about things. Divide us over things that are gray. Oh, the best area to divide people over, right? If there's not an absolute answer, there's, there's human beings, human failings involved in all sorts of areas of our lives, then we need to be able to allow the enemy in to divide us over this stuff. Well, I agree to disagree. Well, no, we are called in Scripture to have unity. In the bond of peace, to have unity. It doesn't mean unanimity sometimes. It doesn't mean we agree to every word, but in Christ, we're guided and directed toward the same thing. So, Saul, the first words we hear in this book of Acts from chapter 9, in the first verse, he says, still breathing threats and murder. Is that a godly uh, characteristic? He was so angry about and so zealous for his religious understanding of what was being broken in the fact that his highest order of business in religious pursuit is to prepare for the coming one. And these upstarts have said the coming one has come and his name is Jesus of Nazareth and he didn't overthrow the government. He's overthrowing our hearts. He's transforming us from the inside. He didn't believe that. The issue for us in the midst of this is he was having, he was having something that was going to completely transform his vision, completely transform his, his understanding. And the issue, the principle that God wants to deal with in you and me by reading this is to understand spiritual blindness. Because when we face spiritual blindness, we come up against uh, something that we are so set is absolute truth and we come to find out when we submit it to the Lord, he gives us a different view. Not always contrary to the view that we have, but with a greater level of appreciation, a greater level of understanding. So Paul doesn't care. At this point, he's on his way to Damascus. He, he's, he's getting uh, the ability to, be, um, to find in them uh, any person who is a follower of Jesus. And as he went along his way, uh, a light beam hit him. Boom! Now, you know, as they describe it, we, we like to, you know, read into it that he was knocked off of his horse or knocked on his petard, right? He fell to the ground, and as he's on the ground, he hears this voice. Was it in his head? No. Because the witness of what was done at the time said, the men that were with him heard the voice they were hearing the voice but not seeing anyone. 
they stood speechless. Have you ever had those moments in your life? You know you've memorized the tone, the cadence, the sound of the principal's voice, the sound of a coach's voice, the sound of your boss's voice. And I hear, Morgan, get your butt over here. Something changes inside of you. There's an authority, uh, a sense that, you know, I've got to come to attention and be aware of what's going on. And so did the people surrounding him. Saul rose from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he couldn't see. So they led him on. No, no real understanding of what was supposed to happen, but he was told by the Lord after he asked this question. And it's curious to me whether this was cultural politeness, but he says, who are you? Not just who are you, but he says, who are you, Lord? Recognizing the superior power that came over him, recognizing the authority that knocked him on his rear end. He recognized that there's something there. It was not uncommon to refer to somebody as Lord who had some sort of jurisdictional power. It's not like Thomas yet. Because Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Peter said, my Lord and my God. They came to understandings with inside of them that completely changed their view that Jesus may be an underling of something or equal with the God the Father. So here he is speechless. He goes on to Damascus and was, he was told, rise and enter the city uh, and you will be told what you are to do. Okay. His authority to, to kill Christians, to entangle them and take them back to Jerusalem is now diminished to somebody who can't see and needs to be led by hand to the next place. It had to be an ego buster, right? Is God sometimes in the business of ego busting? You bet he is. And so he goes in and he, uh, the story shifts and therefore, get it, now, I, you know, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but how many days was he without sight or food? Hmm. Would that make him think of Jonah? Would that make him recall the stories that, the Jesus, that Je were told of Jesus about his entombment? I think later we would all make that connection. But maybe Paul, being a dedicated studier of the law, knew how Prophetic words were spoken again and again and again and again to point us to the Messiah. Now, there was this disciple named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, <laughs> yes, Lord, <laughs> build me an ark. No, that was Noah. Um, Here I am, Lord, he says. And the Lord said to him, rise up and go to the street called Straight. Again, we can spiritualize this, but we're going to go to a place that is a direct line. There's no variance to it. It's not around the corner. It's not up the hill and down the street. It's not from here to Jericho. It is go to the street called Straight. And in a house, you'll find Judas. Look for the man Tar uh, from Tarsus named Saul. 
and behold, he is praying. Well, duh. I mean, Paul has been for three days without food. He can't see, and he's, he's really shaken, shaken to his core. Imagine sitting, having been told that you need to go into the city, but having no other reference point, no other uh, solace for your blindness, you're suddenly wrecked. And that's what Paul needed. Paul needed to be wrecked in order for his spiritual blindness to be grabbed a hold of so that the revelation of Christ can become real in him. Here comes Ananias. He walks into the house of Judas and he is seen, uh, he's come to lay hands on you that you might have sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call in your name. Ananias is just like you and I. We're scared. We get to enter into a situation that we've been called into to speak the truth and let the truth speak for itself. But it might end me up in jail. Better yet, it might end me up being dead. Did you hear I said better yet? Because if we're dead doing things for the Lord, then we're in the Lord's hands, right? We have nothing to fear in him. But still our flesh kicks in. The Lord says to him, go. Go, because he's the, he's the one that I've chosen to be the instrument to change the lives of Gentiles. And I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Notice what he says about Paul. It's not that he'll have the riches of the kingdom, not that it'll have the king's imprimatur, not that it'll have the, the force of the Sanhedrin behind him, but that he'll have to suffer in my name. He will face the same glory that I have to face, being the Lord, having risen from the dead, sent him out. He will have to face those sufferings for the sake of the kingdom. So Ananias departed. And when he entered the house, he laid hands on Paul. And I'm sure they weren't hands that were like, hmm, I'm so confident in the Lord, but oh, I'm so confident in the Lord. And he laid hands on Paul. There are some things that happened in the midst of this teaching that we have to bear witness to. First of all, in the flesh, Paul was protecting his vision in in the flesh he was needing a sight to be restored in the flesh he was misdirected going from place to place frantically trying to capture those who were followers that were contrary to what he thought supported his religious view instead what the lord wanted to confront in in him was his fear their fear. He was afraid that his religion might get marred. People were afraid that they might get dead because of Paul. His spiritual blindness. He was spiritually blind because he wasn't open to God moving in a different way than he had seen before. It was just only the practice of what we've always done. Let me tell you, folks, that doesn't work. How many Episcopalians or Anglicans does it take to screw in a light bulb? 17. 
One to screw in the light bulb and 16 to sing the today I'm uh, glad that there's, a, that there's new light, but sadness forever that the great-grandfather that once put that light bulb in there is now being dishonored. We don't know how to break with our, our past history. Last thing. He was to be given a mission for the misdirection that he was causing by his hatred and his murder. He was given a mission so what God does is he, he, gives us, uh, he gives us authority for our fear. He gives us uh, sight for our blindness and gives us direction for our lostness. Those are the principles that are coming out of this. So as Paul is consecrated, he is consecrated at this moment by Ananias by the, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately scales, things like scales fell from his eyes. I'd never experienced anything like this. Can you imagine things that were like scales covering your eyes? I, I know many people who have had to deal with cataracts, uh, who have had lens issues in their eyes, but nothing described like this, something physical falling from their eyes. At one time I was preaching a sermon quite like this, and I, and I said, God wants to give us spiritual sight today. He wants us to see into his kingdom something that we haven't seen before. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray it again and again, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us eyes on earth that we would have in heaven. Give us lips on earth that would speak your praises as we would be in heaven. Give us lives and bodies that would reflect your beauty here on earth as it would be in heaven. That's the prayer that we pray so regularly, and we've memorized it since we were a child, and we've done all the right things with it, and we rattle it right off of our lips. But when you take it slowly, and you really dig into that prayer, and you really participate in its meaning, it's exactly what, what happens when we are again given a revelation by God that gives us new sight. Paul rose. What was the first thing that they say he did here in John? He was baptized. He would be familiar with a mikvah, which is you know a cleansing bath that would allow you to be clean and free, sort of like the last step entering into the temple. As you went to the temple, you would pay a priest to allow you to be washed, and you'd walk down one side of the mikvah, and you'd be doused, and then you'd be, a fresh linen would be put on you, and you could enter the temple now. And it was a process. It was a religious process, but this was no religious process. This is Paul saying, I have been completely decimated my mission and my ministry has been completely changed because once I was blind, but now I see. He took food and he was strengthened. And we know that the story goes on. I was preaching a sermon very much like this once in, um, in Woodbridge in Virginia. And after the service was over, this woman who clearly had no ma mascara left uh, and there were pools of water just dripping off of her chin. She said, it happened. And I said, 
what happened, Donna? She said, it happened. I, I, I had things in my hands. They're not there anymore. They just disappeared. But I, I, was, I was so convicted by what God was showing me, how blind I was and how angry I was, that I had this murderous spirit in me, that I was so broken myself that these things <coughs> popped out of my eyes like stuff that you would get when your eyes would get gunk in it from having conjunctivitis, but thicker and more full that would cover my whole eye. And as I looked at them in my hands, they disappeared, but I knew that my spiritual blindness was gone. Father Dan, I can see, and I want to live in that. I was like, wow. <laughs> what do you do with that? She can bear witness to it. She can bear witness to it. For me, now the Lord gave that remembrance of it uh, to me so that I could tell you. But man, that's her testimony. God so changed her that she was able to get past her spiritual blindness and walk in this understanding of faithfulness. So the Lord in this picture really has spoken to us about a few things. When there's revelation, that revelation means nothing unless we can see with the eyes that God has given us. So he's got to be. We can beat the pulpit, whatever your bully pulpit is. You can scream and shout at others, or you can give them pamphlets or books or tapes or CDs or DVDs or even cassettes or 8-track, <laughs> if you remember what those are, to remind people of the power of God but that's because in you, you have experienced the transformation. The invitation that we need to make is an invitation that reminds people that it's God who transforms. It's when, we, when we share the gospel with somebody, we share it with them so that they can make the prayer of acceptance, so that they might say, Lord, give me eyes to see because I can't see. Like the blind man, I believe, forgive my unbelief. I believe, forgive my unbelief. It's still happening, folks, to me today. I hope it's still happening to you, that God is still in the business of transforming my heart and my life, giving me renewed perspective, making me look more like him. Day in and day out, he's giving me that level of strength. So when we hear the, the word today, and we understand that revelation is affirmed by action outside of ourselves so we know that it is the work of God. No way did we know Ananias before this. No way did we know that he was going to show up on the street that I lived on, the street called Straight in the house of Judas, to be able to lay hands on this one particular man for the sake that he would be consecrated for a ministry, a mission that would take him forward. He was set aside. Revelation brings affirmation if it's of the Lord. That affirmation brings mission or consecration. God setting you aside for a purpose. What's that purpose? You've got to get that in your prayer closet with the Lord. You've got to ask the Lord, what's, what's my purpose? Where, where are my gifts? How can I use them for the sake of the kingdom? What is it that I'm going to do for you, Lord, with what you've given me? He gave Paul, the ability, knowing the scriptures, to be zealous for him. He had the wrong focus. Now he can have the right focus 
and understand the fulfillment of all of that learning that he had over the years to be able to, to help transform others outside of the church. So in the New Testament today, we heard from John in uh, the revelation of John. John's having this beatific vision, this, this view of God in his, in his glory in heaven. I don't know if you've ever had a vision of God or, or had a sense of his overwhelming nature. You've heard me tell bits and bits of stories. I'm not going to go into it right now. But um, when I was in Georgia, I drowned. And in the hospital, I had a beatific vision of God. I had this sense of his presence and his glory. Didn't matter whether I lived or died. I was his. I, did, I, I wasn't worried about all the things of life. Because those were, were nothing. I thought I was completely clear and cogent. I'm on the phone with Kristen saying, don't worry. Don't, you don't need to get here. I'll be fine. Blah, blah, blah. And what she heard was, I thought I was speaking clearly, but in my body, <clears throat> I could not say what needed to come across. And my ears could not hear. Uh, I was speaking in tongues to myself, I guess. <laughs> because what I heard was this cogent, clear, thoughtful you know, don't worry about it. What she was told was something else. And we experienced a miracle that day. Let me give you an illustration. This beatific vision that, that John has is this revelation about these seven seals. Knowing that the completion of all of humanity only came down to when those seals were opened and the full revelation of God was opened. All very highly um, illustrative language. And sometimes we get so caught up in the language that we, it's like watching the, the History Channel and Ancient Aliens, and we, we try to make it so much more than it really is. It was a scroll, and that scroll spoke of the, the end of the age that would begin a new age of the kingdom. And there was only one who could open that scroll, only one who had authority, only one who had power, only one who knew how to do that without destroying the scroll. Because parchment, you know, scroll, if you think of it just in its natural form, was very delicate. And a hard seal of wax to cut it open might destroy some of the scroll. It could crumble in their hands. And here was this story. And the, one of the elders that was around this proclamation says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What has he conquered? Well, we know by looking 2020, hindsight is perfect and the scriptures have revealed. He's conquered sin and death. Done with, over, finished, nada, nothing. And you say, well, I see it around me every day. I turn the news on for 30 seconds and I hear sin and death, sin and death, sin and death. There's a shooter in this school system. There's people on drugs. There's uh, a fire in this district. There are people who are out that hate and kill each other. Our government's falling apart. Our economy stinks. Sin and death, sin and death, sin and death. And we can get caught into it. We can gobble that beautiful, large buffet right up, right? Because the world is feeding it to us on a platter with a smile on their face. Because they believe in their right 
in their religious zeal that they've got the right buffet to feed you with. And you've got to have ears to hear and eyes to see what the Lord is doing. So here in this beatific vision, here is uh, John seeing and hearing this word. And I don't think it's any um, surprise to me or, or any uh, great theological understanding that God gives us particular images to understand the fullness of time, the fullness of what heaven would be like. And he describes it as the wedding feast of the Lamb. We are Christ's bride, the beautiful, spotless bride. Well, we're not so spotless, but in him, we're spotless. In his eyes, in his ears, in his knowing, in his choosing, he has made us spotless. I remember the day that um, I was married to Kristen and I looked down the aisle. All the preparation is made, you know, all the fretting, all the hand-wringing, all the, you know, this person can't show up or this person's going to be the musician, but they missed the ferry coming from Martha's Vineyard, so they're not going to be there on time and all the sweat that went into it, and here we go. And I see her turn the corner with her father. I was wrecked. I was wrecked. Because this person had chosen to give herself to me. This person has chosen to lay herself down and say, with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. In the same way, when we have the revelation of Jesus in heaven, in his kingdom, his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we get to see the fullness of his beauty, the fullness of the surrender that he's made on our behalf. I joyfully, Lord of all eternity, give to you my life, my blood, my body, that it might live in you and I would live in you and you in me so that there would be union. There would be union in heaven. We have to be able to see that so that we can understand that in God's timing and in his clarity, he might give us eyes to see and ears to hear. D.L. Moody in the late 1800s um, was hearing a story uh, of a um, non-believing reporter, go figure, who believed that um, his testimony, Moody's testimony, was just religious hubbub. Uh, it expressed a, a purpose for which that he wrote very sarcastic articles about religion in his newspaper uh, and he believed that the stories were just made-up anecdotes in order to, um, to espouse something that would sell newspapers. So one of Moody's anecdotes one day says this. A gentleman was walking down the streets of a city sometime before, and it was um, near Christmas time, and many of the shop windows were filled with Christmas presents and toys. And this gentleman passing along, he saw three girls standing before um, a shop window. Two of them were trying to describe to the third the things that were in the window. It got his attention. And he wondered what it could mean. He went back and found out that the middle one was blind. She had never been able to see, and her two sisters were endeavoring to tell her how 
the things looked. And the gentleman stood beside them for some time and listened. And he said it was the most interesting, it was most interesting to hear them trying to describe different articles to the blind child. They found it to be a really difficult task. That is just my position in trying to tell other men about Christ. I said, I may talk about him, and yet they see no beauty in him, for they should not desire him. But if they will only come to him, he will open their eyes and reveal himself to them and all his loveliness and grace. After the meeting, the reporter came to me and asked me where I got that story. And I said that I'd read it in the Boston paper, and he told me that it happened to be right there in the streets of Baltimore, and that he was the gentleman referred to. It was such an impression on him that he accepted Christ and became one of the first converts in that city. Many and many a time I have found that when the sermon and even the text has been forgotten, some story has fastened itself to the hearer's mind and has borne fruit. Anecdotes are like windows to let light in upon a subject. They have a, a useful ministry, and I pray God to bless this collection to every reader, Moody says. The anecdote for us today are these stories that Jesus tells or shows or lives in his life. He'd been with his disciples and while the disciples were confused about what was being fully revealed to them, he shows up for a third time. And uh, having been a little bit confused about the nature of his, his call, um, Peter, who was with the disciples, had received that commissioning, if you will, that outpouring, not the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. You know, he can do that with a whisper. He doesn't have to scream it at us for it to be exciting or powerful. Just, he could just say, receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, um, Peter was like, so what now? Have you ever had a moment with the Lord? You come back from that retreat. You come back from that encounter with him. Uh, you, you hear something, whether it be on television or in church, something that removes the scales from your eyes, and you say, what now? And that's right where Peter was. What does he say? I know Bob Fletcher would say this, right, Bob? <laughs> I'm going fishing, right? Nothing wrong with that. They went out in the boat, but all night they caught nothing, which should remind them that this has happened before. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. He says, hey, little children or lads, laddie, have you caught no fish? They said to him, no. And he says, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. It's been a long night, buddy. I don't know who you are, but, you know, I've got enough fishy-smelling nets around me to make me want to vomit right now, and I had no sleep. But because he said so. There was something in the authority of Jesus' word that they, they agreed, and they put down their nets. 
And John, having eyes to see, leans over to Peter and says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Peter, no, uh, impulsive Pete. Gotta love him for this. He just immediately, it's not a fear of whether he's going to walk on water or whatnot. He's stripped down to barely nothing, for that was the tradition, so that you can get robes caught up in fishnets and all that kind of stuff. He threw his robe on, dove in the water, and was on the shore. Jesus wants to restore him. And we get the opening picture of this meal that he has with his disciples. And you've heard it before. The illustration for today is this. If we are people who are blind, leading people who are blind, then we're going to fall into things that the enemy wants us to fall into. But if we have spiritual sight, helping others regain spiritual sight, then we will see that he wants to restore us. All the things we may or may not have done wrong, all the things that we don't have in line, all of the albums that don't edify him, whether they need to be burned or not, are made right in his presence. And we need to submit ourselves to him so that he can do that. For you and I, the reality is, we can try to explain to our brother or sister, to our neighbor, our friend, to people that it grieves our hearts that they don't see as we see. We can shake our heads and uh, fur our, our brows and give them all the illustrations. But until the Holy Spirit lives in that word, in that antidote, in that anecdote, in that uh, parable, then the transformation in that person's heart can't happen. You and I need to trust his holy moment to sow seeds not like, um, not like a technician. Have you ever grown plants from seeds? You know, typically what they would do is say, take an egg carton, fill it with some, some uh, topsoil, right? And then you, you take a pencil and you push it down inside the topsoil and you very carefully place a seed inside that topsoil and you pray. It's not how a sower sowed seed. A sower had a bag of seed that he had paid for and waited for all winter that in the right season would come along. He would take his fist and he would plunge it into that bag and he'd say, let's grow what we can grow. And he sowed lavishly. The Lord wants to sow lavishly into your life so that you would sow lavishly into others' lives. And the things that we trip over so that we don't do that is ourselves. Because we're afraid that the Lord won't restore us for the things that we don't have right in our thought life, don't have right in our action life, don't have right in our religious life. Because we use religion to tear us apart. And let me tell you, he wants to restore that. He wants to remove that stain so that we could walk in freedom. So my prayer this morning is that you would say, Lord, I'm yours. Show me so that I might see you, fill me that I might move in you, help me to understand so that I might have eyes to see and ears to hear and a will to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.